mad. We're fat. And we're loud. all green around it you know every time you see the hollywood sign it, it just looks like nothing but uh but dirt and sand around it and i think it, it rained uh it, it's been raining quite a bit lately which of course we needed for a long time especially with all those fires so uh you know i mean but i mean it, it came just a little bit too late it would have been great if uh it come a little bit sooner for all the people that were out in the hills and, and everything but uh but otherwise how you guys doing today man uh being in Mississippi, we're dealing with forty degree weather and looks dates or somebody to go, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really can't complain. So a little rain, a little rain's good. We, I mean, we definitely need the rain out here. So it's a it's a good thing, most definitely. And uh, for my listeners out there, you have been hearing the a voice that sounds familiar to you, and if you'll allow me to do a little intro. Maybe I can put two and two together for you. Think about the impact that music and movies have had on one another, specifically the impact that movies have had on the music industry. October 1956, TV changed music forever when Elvis Presley showed up on the Ed Sullivan show. Not... You know, eight years later, the start of the British invasion as the Beatles show up again on Ed Sullivan. August 1981, a massive change in the consumption of music as MTV launches as the first all-video network. God, we miss those days. Um, Then another change came in September of 1991 when Nirvana released the Smells Like Teen Spirit video and introduced the world to grunge, something that we'd all just kind of been, or an alternative, something we hadn't really heard much about. And then in 1999, we all met a somewhat angry, bald man from New Jersey who liked alternative music and turned out to be one of my favorite interviewers to ever watch. And it is an honor and a privilege to have him with us today, especially after an, a recent accident that we will, I'm sure, we'll get into. Uh, guys, Devin, you too, uh, help us welcome to the show, uh, former host of 120 Minutes on MTV, Mr. Matt Penfield. How are you doing, Matt? How are you doing, guys? Great to be here with you today. Great to be alive and great to be with you today. Yeah, man. I mean, we didn't want to start really with the wreck, but that seems like the way to do it because we've been discussing this interview for over a month. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it, of course, and and then I got derailed. I mean, what happened was it was uh, the night of December 3rd. Um, I had uh, literally been crossing the street coming from a coffee shop that's – it's right over here in, on Franklin Avenue in, in Hollywood, California. 
And uh, I was crossing the street like I've done a thousand times, like so many people do, going back and forth. And as I was looking across the street, looking both ways, because, you know, never take for granted to ever walk out in front of traffic, especially after all those years of working in New York City, which, you know, people <laughs> people will hit you. I mean, they definitely will. Cabbies will City, hit you cabbies. in New York. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I... I, I learned I learned about that years ago. I mean, it was just really important, uh, you know, to, to keep an eye on where you're walking uh, because people will get hit by buses, by cabs. Well, I happen to be just be crossing the street, 7.45 at night. Uh, I'm, I'm crossing. I go across two lanes. There's no cars coming either way that I can see. As I get in the third lane and I'm uh, almost home free, uh I notice a car coming out of the right side of my eye. I can just just make a car speeding at me. And where I go to jump up, uh, there's no way to get out of the way in time because uh, the person driving the car obviously was either looking at their phone texting or just weren't looking in front of them because there was certainly enough light that they would have seen me walking across the street. So I was hit. I jumped up and I, uh, you know, the first thing that happened was bumper hit my, uh, my right leg, broke my leg in two places. Um, I had a compound fracture. So the bone actually came out of the, out of the flesh. So my, my, I was like, it was, the leg was lo- looking like a pretzel, but I mean, at this point, everything was happening so fast. I, I was conscious of course. So I was going through the air, my head smashed through their windshield. So there's a, I have a, you know, I have a scar there now that my, cause my head completely opened up to the skull. Um, so after that, I spun through there, bounced off the hood of their car and then back onto the street. I hit my head twice. So I hit my head again on the, on the concrete right on the street. And the miracle is, uh, that I had no brain damage, no paralysis, uh, no change to my motor skills, no stroke, uh, no loss of consciousness. And, um, you know, I mean, it's a miracle. It's a, it's a, it's a, I say that it's one of God's miracles that, uh, and this is what the EMS people said. Uh, obviously the, the, when the impact, when the car hit my body, it was so loud because, uh, the driver didn't break that, um, literally people in the whole surrounding area, you know, in, in a couple of blocks in different apartment buildings, I all came out and came, or came outside or came out and were looking because the loud, it was so loud when he hit me. It was, and they thought it was one car hitting another car, but no, it was one car hitting my body. And, uh, which is pretty amazing. So, I mean, uh, I ended up, uh, I was conscious for the entire thing. I looked down, um, and, you know, I, yeah, I just, I knew my, I couldn't, I was going to try and get up. Um, I was in a bit of shock, but I was conscious and, uh, you know, they called 911, a bunch of neighbors, people were surrounding. Uh, the driver obviously stopped because her windshield was shattered from my head. And uh, got got in the ambulance, uh, and the, the FDA, uh, the, the uh, Los Angeles Fire Department, and they uh, basically looked at me and said, you know, eight out of ten times, you wouldn't have survived this accident. You're, it's, it's a real miracle. So I got to the emergency room at a hospital called Cedar sinai in uh, Beverly Hills, and when I got there, uh, I, I, you know, I was still conscious during the entire thing. And the, uh, surgeon in there who was working on my head basically said, uh, no, no, you know, I used to watch this guy growing up on TV. I, I, no, I'm going to sew him up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sew him, which was, that's one of those times when you're grateful. He, and so while he was sewing me up, 
And, you know, I've, this is amazing trauma that I've been through. He's talking to me about rock and roll. He loves hard rock and loves rock and roll. So it was the, the plastic surgeon, the head surgeon was talking about rock and roll, which was great because it certainly distracted me from, from it. But it was, you know, it was one of those things that was painful because you're getting sewn up and you're conscious. And there's only so much of a local anesthetic that they can use, which they're kind of putting inside. But, uh, there was a picture that TMZ showed that uh, was literally a photo of me in the emergency room that they had to blur the top out of because most people considered it too gruesome. But it was my head split open, and there was an incredible amount of blood. Uh, but, uh, you know, I stayed in the intensive care for about a week. A lot of friends uh, came and visited, and uh, a week later, they transferred me to a second hospital, this place called the California Rehabilitation Institute, and I went there. I lived there for another week and did physical therapy about four hours a day. And, uh, you know, eventually was discharged, uh, because they knew that, you know, I, I had, uh, people that were going to help me out. So I'd be all right at home. Uh, you know, they knew that my girlfriend was here and she was going to help me out, which is, you know, help take care of me uh, while I was here. And, uh, you know, I'm doing physical therapy and I'm getting better every day. You know, I, I just have this crazy looking scar. It was, uh, it was funny because, uh, you mentioned the Beatles and, you know, I, uh, I see Ringo sometimes out here with a bunch of other guys. We get together on Monday night sometimes. And Ringo said last week, he goes, Hey, Matt, he goes, the great news is at least you have a really badass scar. <laughs> so, I mean, the scar. It does yeah. fit your, yeah, I mean, it does fit the persona. I mean, I'm grateful because, you know, if you think about it, that scar could have been an inch lower. It would have taken my eye out. There's no question about it. Or, I mean, it could have been anywhere. It could have been across my mouth. I mean, a lot of people will, I mean, you know, I had, oh, and the other thing that I found out later was that the uh, surgeon actually sewed part of my ear back on. So my ear was partially ripped off my right ear. Um, and he did a really great job. And I'm just grateful that I can still hear. I mean, I can still hear music. My eyesight is fine. It's it's a real again it's a miracle so I'm grateful I'm still in the process of recovering but uh, you know I uh, I uh, you know I've been getting out and about you know as much as I can and I, I have to use a walker right now but I'm expected to make a full recovery and be able to walk again I have a metal titanium rod in my leg uh, because like I said it broke pretty badly in two places but hey. Again, I'm just grateful to be alive and grateful to be able to be here and talk to you guys today. Man, you know? absolutely. Now, as somebody that has had surgery and had to deal with a walker before, I have to ask one particular question. What's that? What brand of tennis ball did you use? Wilson's were my favorite. <laughs> oh, yeah, Wilson's are great. You can use those, you know? It's funny. I'm. You know what, though? I'm, I, I, I did have Wilson's on the one that I had. Uh, in the hospital, but these just these just have these stoppers on the bottom of them. Well, that's no fun. My, yeah, so that <laughs> these are, this is the one that I have, and they gave me this. And uh, you know, I'm I'm going to go to this Chris Cornell tribute concert on uh, Wednesday night, which is the uh, big thing that they're having over at the LA Forum with you know the Metallica guys, Foo Fighters, and Perry from Gaines Addiction, Mike Patton from Faith No More. All these guys are going to be performing. Ryan Adams, and um, it's going to be interesting because it'll be the first time I go to a major venue uh, and actually walking around on a walker. But I did go to Jimmy Kimmel last Wednesday, uh, and uh, Jimmy was great because he made sure like I had a couch to sit on and disturbed they were playing. So 
they do the big thing outdoors and, and those guys were looking after me. So that was cool. And, uh, but yeah, I'm getting out and about, you know, I'm, I'm slowly, uh, I'm going out, you know, as much as I, I can. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just, once again, I'm just grateful. I mean, it could have been both legs, you know what I mean? I mean, so many people have been, uh, through, uh, worse things. Um, and considering the amount of impact and the speed the car was going again, I, I consider myself blessed. I consider myself extremely lucky, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it could have ended much worse and that's, uh, for one, I know for for our sake, we're glad to know that you, that everything's okay, that the recovery's going along well, and uh, hopefully you'll be back on my radio or my TV before too long. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, I'm still doing, uh, you know, I've been, you know, doing my show Flashback, which is this syndicated show that I do, which is a rock history show, which uh, Westwood One syndicates, and. Uh, you know they've run, they ran a, you know a few best ofs and uh, but getting back in the flow of recording that as well and uh, and doing that show and you know there's uh, you know I was actually working I was working on this uh, to be honest with you I was working on a uh, a TV show that although it, it just worked out this way it's this new show uh, that it looks like it'll probably be on Showtime but um, uh, I can't I guarantee that right now but I can say that. Uh, this guy named Ash Avildsen, who runs a record label called Sumerian, he also has a company called Sumerian Films. His father uh, directed Rocky, Karate Kid, a bunch of other shows, uh, movies back then. Uh, he wrote this TV show uh, called Paradise City, of course, named after the Guns N' Roses song. And um, I'm in it as myself. You know, it's not the first time that I've you know been in a, a show as myself because I was on Portlandia. With Kurt Loder and Tabitha Soren, we did that MTV comedy ep- episode, and I did Dennis Leary's Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll on effects. But um, and I always end up playing myself, which is fine with me. I mean, so anyway, I, I ended up shooting a bunch of scenes for this TV show that's about these two rock and roll bands, and uh, it's a fictitious show, but it's got cool people in it. It's got like you know characters and people from Sons of Anarchy, Entourage. Uh, Walking Dead, um, Sopranos. So it's all different uh, actors and actresses from these different shows uh, that are in this new show. But it turned out that I was supposed to shoot the majority of these scenes for this TV show the day after my accident. But it, but because of the change in the weather, speaking of rain, uh, they were going to shoot a scene on a Santa Monica pier. And uh, because it was going to rain one night, they, the director calls me up and goes, hey, I'm moving up your scenes two weeks. So, uh, you think you can be prepared and focused and ready to do these scenes tomorrow night? And I said, all right, well, I sure will. So it was like a 12 hour shoot. It was an overnight shoot, but I got my scenes done. So, uh, you know, I mean, I would have been completely out of that show. I mean, there's right. no question. I was in no condition to do it. So that was good news. That most of that stuff, other than a documentary about the making of that show, where I was interviewing all the, uh, all the people in it. Uh, we we got a lot of that done, but then I'd have my, one of my friends step in and uh, do the rest of it for me while I was while I was hospitalized. But uh, generally, you know, everything's everything's been all right, you know. So, you know, I just look at every day as a blessing. You know, I'm still here, you know, and that's the cool thing. I mean, I just it gives me a lot of time to listen to music and uh, and to catch up on uh, some of the new movies that are out and are coming up for Oscar season, and you know. 
in the SAG Awards. So that's what I've been doing, you know? Right. Now, now, okay, what have you what have you heard or seen since you've had the time, the downtime to to kind of absorb what's out there now? What have you seen that has really spoken to you? Well, I mean, it's important for me. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed seeing Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, the Queen movie, because, you know, I saw Queen when I was a kid. You know, I saw them in 1976, night at the Opera Tour at a small venue i mean the beacon theater is a pretty small place they didn't graduate to playing madison square garden and big arenas until the following year in 1977 and i saw that as well as a young kid with thin lizzie opening up for him um and that was a you know it was a it was a great show but um the 76 show was a was a it was a magical for a kid and they were still you know freddie still had really long hair and it was uh, it was still early early years, the first four albums. So uh, years ago, I um, I got a phone call uh, from Brian May. Uh, he had called me when I work was working at MTV in the late nineteen nineties. Um, he had uh, was told by Trent Reznor. See, he he had asked Trent Reznor to write liner notes for this Queen box set called The Crown Jewels, and it was. Uh, it was an eight CD box set of their first eight albums released on CD altogether in this uh, velvet box, blue box. And uh, I got a phone call because he had asked Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails to do it first. And uh, Trent said, look, I'm really busy with this Downward Spiral tour and I'm going to be on the road a little longer. But he said, uh, but I got just the guy who should do this for you. So Trent Reznor recommended me for it. And I ended up writing the liner notes, a small book inside the uh, queen box set so because of that historically you know i wanted to see that movie i want to you know any basically any movie about rock and roll i definitely want to see it you know so that was that i I enjoyed seeing that movie i mean there were certainly parts of it that were historically wrong time-wise um that have but but you know you're going to find that in any the way i look at it in any hollywood movie they rarely ever get that kind of thing right but uh I did think the performances were great, so I saw that. Uh, I, I've seen Vice, you know. I just got that uh, in the mail, which, uh, from you know, luckily uh, because I've done some acting uh, in these in these TV shows, I've gotten you know I'm on the Screen Actors Guild list, so they send you movies, new movies that are out there, and uh, so I've been trying to check out everything. Uh, you know that that I I mean while I'm while I'm just playing around when I'm not doing it, man. That's therapy. a good way to get me to not leave the house is give me a bunch of new movies to watch. <laughs> yeah, because you know you can watch them in the convenience of your own house on a DVD player. That's a good thing. You know what I mean? So you need to so pause and go to the bathroom. You pause and go to the bathroom. If you want to stop and smoke, stop and smoke. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and that's kind of what I do. You know what I mean? That's what I'll do. I'll step out. I'll take my walker out onto the patio and have a cigarette and then come back. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, I mean, uh, they did warn me, you know what? Smoking is not good for healing, for healing the uh, bones. But, um, I don't know. I, uh, you I know, guess I've I cut been hearing back. for years. It's not good for you, but I it never stopped me either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't stopped yet. You know what I mean? I haven't stopped yet either. Maybe I cut back a little. I don't know. But, uh, I've seen some of my other friends quit lately, and I'm uh, and I, I gave them a lot of credit, but you know, but it, but you know, that, so that's that's what's going on here. I mean, I again, it's one of those life changing incidents, you know, uh, that you know, one of those things that happens, um, and a lot of different things happen with age. I mean, who's who's to say that my knees, like you said, you've had knee operations. I mean, 
who's to say that that wouldn't have been have come along uh I mean, you know, my father had two artificial hip replacements. So, I mean, uh, genetically, who knows if that was, you know, something in the future anyway. I will say that my knee, like, my knees got banged up pretty bad, obviously. I had a lot of road rash, you know, so everywhere. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, my head, it looked, like I said, it looked pretty crazy. If you look at the, uh, the interview on TMZ, which I know they, they have an edited version of it up on their website. Uh, and then every, all the other news services picked up the story, but, um, just that I, you know, they said I was lucky to be alive, which was absolutely true. But, uh, you know, like I said, I'm healing up pretty good other than that scar, which, you know, um, maybe I'll get a role as a bad guy as a, you know, in, in some, in some show coming up, you know what I mean? Hey, but, uh, Matt Penfield is Scarface. Yeah, I'll take, I'll take it. I'll take it. If, Don't you if do it's that available. sequel. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> boy, wouldn't that be great? I mean, you know. I don't know if they could ever beat the original, but wouldn't that be uh, that? Would, that would be great to be in something like that. But uh, too too bad there's uh, Sons of Anarchy wasn't still out there. Ah, uh, you would have fit perfectly on that show. <laughs> yeah, you know. In fact, I was with. Uh, I went to the rap party for our uh, this Paradise City TV show, and you know the guy who, guy, uh, Bob, who played Bobby on there, uh, Mark Boone Jr. Boone. He's uh, he and I were hanging out, and he was like, he wanted to see all the other pictures of me from the from like the accident from early on because he hadn't seen them all, but he was, uh, all those guys were just, uh, yeah, everybody, everybody kind of reached out, which was cool. A lot of musicians, uh, and just a lot of friends, uh, people were, were checking in, which was cool. You know, I, I think it just it blew a lot of people's minds, you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere, they're like, you know, I'm just glad I, I, I like that famous uh, Cypress Hill song that goes, I ain't going out like that. I'm just, uh, glad that, uh, that I'm still with you. You know, well, so and, you know, it's funny because we had we ended up in a what we call a YouTube rabbit hole one night watching old rock documentaries or behind the musics, whatever we could really find. And we found the one on the Headbangers Ball. And we were sitting around talking about Headbangers Ball and I said, Screw Headbangers Ball. Like for me, it was 120 minutes. I said, I always liked Matt Penfield because he always came across as somebody that was just shooting straight with you and you knew he wasn't going to take any shit off of you. And Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I'm sorry. Don't let me interrupt you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just, I absolutely loved that show because it opened me up because I didn't get into the alternative genre until later you know it, it started hitting in 92 93 i didn't come along into a lot of the more popular stuff in the early era until 98 99 so my right, you, my taste evolved a little differently but that's great i'm glad that 120 minutes was an important show to you because uh i mean i i i loved doing that show and it was one of those things where um when you know, when I saw the show, it's an interesting story. I'll tell you, um, you know, uh, I, I was working at, I was running a radio station. It was a station that I worked at part time on the Jersey shore. It was called WHTG. It was a alternative station. Uh, and I'd worked down there doing weekends from about 1984 until right around 1990. I had, um, you know, they all of a sudden there was a change in management and they let some of the management go. They brought in a new program director from Washington, D.C., from a station there 
And the owner of the station, um, he was, as he was looking to try to figure out who his music director was going to be, uh, the owner of the station said, I think there's one more guy you should meet before you make that decision. So I came down and I met with this man, Michael Butcher, and, uh, and um, uh, by the end of our meeting, you know, he decided he wanted me to be music director, which was what, uh, of course, the owner of the station was, was her idea as well. So I ended up uh, becoming music director. And I was, you know, I had already been spinning an alternative rock nightclubs. I had been doing that for since about, uh, the, the, you know, literally like 1982 or three. The drinking age was, was still 18, then it was 19, then it was 21 in New York and New Jersey. So I kind of rode the, I rode the wave of the drinking age so I could spin in, uh, in nightclubs. And of course, when you're a young guy, there's three things that are great for you if you're doing that. Number one, you're in control of the music. Number two, you drink for free. And number three, it's a great way to meet girls. So it was like, it was, uh, I like the way you think, sir. The ultimate trifecta. Felt like the perfect job for me, and I love I loved doing it. You know, while I was uh, doing college radio at Rutgers, and uh, you know, and that was what I did. And then I continued to spin in clubs because I built up a really great following of people that would come between New York City and Philadelphia, that would come to Central New Jersey, you know, and they would uh, come to this club called the Melody, and um, it was pretty infamous. And I, I would spin there four nights a week, three four nights a week, and then a couple other clubs in the area. And then um, so I did that, and then you know. Like I said, I was part time until uh, until ninety when when they hired me to be music director. So at this point, I was doing weekends there at the radio station, working five days a week as music director, and still doing clubs four nights a week. And that's what, you know that's what you do. I mean, even while I was, I was still doing the clubs, even when I was in management there, because you know I was a mom and pop radio station, and although it had a huge listenership, I mean it they they didn't pay very much. But it was what I love to do. So I, did, I mean, I love turning people on music. I love playing music for people. So, so I did that for uh, for ninety, and then all of a sudden, within a few months, they put me on middays. So I was doing, I was a midday jock there, and now, so I was doing middays, gave the weekends up. I uh, was still doing the clubs, of course, throughout the entire experience. But as music director for a couple of years, and uh, and I won these two music director awards. They used to call them the Gavin Awards when they used to exist for radio. And, um, you know, uh, what happened was I think it just surprised people because I was coming from the Jersey Shore. And usually the guys that would win this award on a yearly basis were always from the major cities. They were from Chicago. They are from Los Angeles. They are from New York, uh, Detroit, San Diego. Uh, and all of a sudden, people are like, well, who is this guy from this small market, uh, this medium small market? And uh, so the industry got to know who I was, you know, at, at that period of time. And I was doing my best in the same way we did on 120 uh, to break new artists and play new bands and turn people on to new things. And, uh, you know, we I always said the difference uh, between me and maybe some of the other music directors and program directors were that I was looking for reasons to play music, not to not play it. You know, well, what was and, your <laughs> what was the, what was the drawing card for you to to alternative specifically? Well, I mean, I, I was into it from a very, very early, early on, like, you know, from the new wave era and then all the stuff that came from like after that, like the cure and the Smiths and all those things that, that evolved and New order and the pest. But I mean, I certainly kind of, I rode the wave to be honest with you with, um, with all the nineties bands, like when the grunge thing happened, I was very, I was really in it early, which is why, you know, Nirvana gave me a, uh, 
four-time platinum, uh, you know, plaque for Nevermind. And I, you know, and of course, and all the other bands that I was involved with working with, you know, um, you know, Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, you know, Pearl Jam and Radiohead. Yeah. I mean, you, the list of, there's just a huge list of artists that I was involved with, uh, at MTV and even in radio. So, uh, I think that in some ways, you know, you look at, uh, as the music changed in 91, when Nirvana came around, it kind of changed the rules for everybody because, uh, it made things different. Uh, after, you know, like, I mean, at first the Guns N' Roses thing kind of, kind of changed the dynamic of, of what was happening, uh, with the eighties glam and hair metal stuff that was happening. I mean, the Guns N' Roses were certainly sharing in some of uh, the audience without a question, but it was definitely more edgy and more grungy than a lot of stuff that had been out there. It's not, I'm, I'm not discounting any of the music at all. I'm just by anybody. I'm just saying that guns came along and really kicked everyone's ass. And then the next thing they called the bulldozer was the Nirvana and the whole grunge revolution and everything that was happening around there with alternatives. So, um, and I loved all of it, but uh, it was uh, really important to me because I had been involved in the alternative music scene for such a long time. Um, it just, it, the timing worked out really well for me. So here I'm doing, I'm working at this radio station. Then I'm going to do an afternoon drive. Then the program director leaves. So I'm now program director, which is, you know, the guy's really running the station. Music director is usually number two to the program director. And, so I'm, I'm running this radio station. It's doing well. It's in Rolling Stones polls, one of the best radio stations in the country. Um, and, you know, I get a phone call. A bottom line is I find out that uh, Dave Kendall, the host before me on 120 Minutes, um, I find out he's no longer hosting the show. I open up our music trade, like a music magazine, a radio magazine, and uh, I see that Dave Kendall's gone. So I... I started, I'd become friends with some of the people that worked in the MTV music department. And those guys were like, um, you know, they were, they were literally, you know, once they had met me out at shows, uh, they started calling me basically to get a temperature on records, um, because they wanted somebody like outside of the record labels who were kind of hyping them on everything that came out, trying to get video play. Uh, they wanted to ask, uh, you know, find somebody they could trust to ask them, well, how's this record really reacting? And does your audience like it? And you were the you know, cool kid with the bootlegs. Yeah. Which was fun. You know, I was, <laughs> yeah. Which was great. You know, and, and I wasn't afraid to play different things. I mean, certainly that was the thing that I loved. I loved to turn people on to new things and imports. And like you said, some great independent records and everything. So we take a lot of chances. So that's what we were doing. And, all of a sudden, I, I, I'm on the phone with uh, this guy named Kurt Steffick, and he was the guy who programmed 120 Minutes at the time. And I'm, and I, you know, and I call him and I go, "Hey, Kurt, you know what's what's going on? What what happened to Dave Kendall? Why is he no longer hosting 120 Minutes?" He said, "Oh, well, they let him go." And I don't, I never really asked the reason. Dave was always, I consider, a nice guy, and you know, I, I remember him interviewing me at like a Robin Hitchcock show, uh, one of my first ever appearances on the. Uh, on MTV was just like as a man on the street kind of thing. And uh, a couple of years before that, and uh, you know, I, as soon as he tells me they let Dave go, I just, I, I'm very, very naive. And, you know, it, it was really naivety. What it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't cocky. I just literally said to him, I go, I hey, Kurt, you know, I think you guys need someone like me to do that show. Somebody who, uh, 
the artist will respect who really knows the music. I mean, I go, that show is about the music. And, that, and, you know, so he basically says to me straight out, he goes, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll talk to the bosses about it. He goes, and it was the funniest thing in the world because he goes, I don't know if you're still in the demo. And um, and I almost laugh now because I, I did work on and off for MTV for years. You know what I mean? So I certainly that was not the case. But he said, all right, you know what, I'll do. I'll talk to the bosses and I'll call you back in about a week. And later that day, he calls me back. He had spoken to uh, the head of music in town, Andy Schoen, and he said, hey, uh, they actually want you to come in and do an audition. So a few weeks later, I ended up coming in for an audition, and I'd never done television before, a bit like a deer in headlights, but I knew I could give it a shot, you know, and I, because of doing radio and deal, you know, dealing with people and because I believed in my love for the music, uh, and my knowledge of it, because it was really what I was into, uh, you know, I had to do a little thing where, you know, you'd basically tell a bit about yourself and what you do. And then you do a bunch of sample breaks, um, throwing the videos. And, um, once I did that, some time went by and all of a sudden they said to me, Hey, uh, Matt, we're going to give you the chance to come in and fill in because Depeche Mode, uh, don't want to host the show. So, uh, it, you know, we're going to have you come in and and fill in and do the show. Cause at this point they were having artists host it. They had not come to a you know conclusion about who was going to host 120 minutes. So, um, I went in, I did the show with Depeche Mode. Um, it was pretty crazy because, uh, it's funny, Dave Gahan from the band, he was so, he was great. You know, he was like engaging with me. Meanwhile, Martin Gore, you know, who's, who's a great guy, but, he was a little burned out, probably like, and this was a syndrome that happened to a lot of the English bands. They would come in the night before, shoot 120 the next day. They would go out and party like the night they landed in New York, and then, uh, then and then they would suffer for it the next day, you know. <laughs> but he was uh, a little burned out. I remember looking at him, just thinking to myself, going, "Oh my God, please, please look at me, man." I go, "You're gonna kill this for me before it begins," and uh, you know, it ended up. To, to, they, they liked the job that I did the first time around. And uh, years later, I used to uh, joke with Martin Gore and tell him, hey, dude, you almost killed my TV career. You know, just screwing around <laughs> with him. You, know, I go, you almost killed it, man. You know, but, uh, you know, I ended up doing a bunch of radio specials with him and more interviews, you know, as the years went on. But uh, so I did it that one time. And then uh, a little more time went by. I remember the, this woman, Lauren Levine, called me. She was the head of, of music. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the head of uh, the talent of all the VJs. She called me, told me that she thought I did a great job and they'd be talking to me more. And that was really encouraging. And I ended up, uh, you know, uh, eventually getting a call to come in and meet with Andy Schoen, who was, uh, you know, the head of music and talent. And he used to run K-Rock in New York. I mean, I'm sorry. K-Rock in New York was a classic rock station. then. he used to run K-Rock in L.A., which was an alternative station. Okay. So he was the PD there. And he brought uh, Louis Largent and Kennedy with him from there and hired them. And moved them to New York City. Um, well, Andy um, had me up in his office, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking, oh man, it's, you know, maybe I got the show. Maybe they're going to give me the show. This is an amazing opportunity. I get into his office, and he uh, says to me, he goes, Matt, he goes, we just we thought you were great, and we want to let you know we we would like to use you again, but we're going to have Lewis Largent host the uh, show. We want to give Lewis uh, more of a national profile. He's our VP of music programming. But, uh, but we did want you to know we were really happy with the job you did. So my, 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 you know, my heart sunk into the floor. I mean, I was like, I, 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 you know, you, you, if someone's bringing you up there to a company like that, you're thinking 
that you you're, you're pretty close to thinking you're going to get some good news, you know. You didn't and think uh, you got called up to get the nice easy letdown. Yeah, so that's what I got, and I remember I was uh, I had to go do an interview with the Water Boys for the CD promo, a band from uh, Scotland. I was supposed to interview them later that day, and I had to, I'm walking down the street. I felt like somebody hit, you know, I I felt like I literally been hit by a car when I wasn't. Uh, I found out about what that was really like later, but I felt like I felt horrible. But I had to suck. You know, it I don't feel so bad about the tennis ball joke now because at least you're making yeah. jokes too. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, I've been joking about it nonstop. I mean, you have to. You, you got to be lighthearted about this thing. I'm grateful to be alive. You know what I mean? I've been uh, I've been talking about uh, songs about car crashes and everything else lately. So, but um, you know, uh, so anyway, so one of the things that I did was I never really stopped staying in touch. I certainly was still very good friends with the people that were in the uh, music department. Um, they, they continued to track records and, and uh, songs with me. Uh, and, you know, every month or so, I would leave a, a voicemail, or not a voicemail, but I would leave a message with Andy Schoen's uh, secretary or assistant and just to keep on his radar to let him know I was out there because, you know, I have a sight's out of mind, you know. So uh, eventually... Some time went by, and uh, I get a phone call that uh, some people are leaving the music department, and uh, MTV's going to be looking to hire some more people in the music and talent department. And I was, they said, we're considering you. So I was, you know, at this point, I brought our, our small radio station, although it was a great radio station. I love, uh, we had some incredible years there and did so many great things in the Asbury, Asbury Park market, and they continued to, you know. I mean, it was a it was a station that uh, Springsteen listened to every day. I mean, he, he loved it, even though um, it was a different format than, than what Bruce's music would necessarily be on. He loved listening to the station. He would show up for my Christmas shows that we would put on and do all the stuff. And uh, you know, it was the station really mattered. And um, but I'd known I had kind of hit a brick wall there. You know, I, I was still working three jobs. Uh, you know, award winning music director um, and loved loved being there, but. Um, knew that I was going to have to make a move at some point. And uh, so this was looked like a great opportunity. I mean, who wouldn't want to program, uh, you know, help program and pick music videos uh, for MTV in that period because it still meant so much. I mean, it was uh, it was still a music-based channel, even though there were, you know, a handful of reality shows like Real World and Road Rules, but it was still, music was still the main focus there. And, um so, you know, I got interviewed for the job and eventually uh, they hired three new people and I got one of the positions. So I was manager of music programming there. And I remember, um, you know, it's crazy because this I'll just explain this to you. It's one of my favorite things it's, I laugh about is our station was so, so small. It was uh, our radio station. You know, everything is perception is reality. And it seemed like a big radio station because we had every great artist come in there. But we were actually in a house in the woods, the radio station. And it had an AM station that played Frank Sinatra and Standards and, and Big Band during, uh, you know, from dawn to dusk. That was the uh, AM station. And then we were a 24-hour alternative station. And um, we were in a house where there, you had to go through the kitchen where the uh, woman who owned the house lived with her cats and go through her, her kitchen to go down the basement stairs to where the sales office was and where the production office was. It was her basement. And uh, so there were only like three phone lines. So I know I'm, I'm getting this call and I'm waiting to find out if I got this job. 
And I, I know that Andy Schoen is calling me that day. Well, sure enough, it's a radio station. It's functioning. So every single phone line is busy for hours. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm running through my head going, oh, man, what if he changes his mind because he can't get through on the phone? What if he decides to hire somebody else? So I'm sitting there worrying about that. And uh, all of a sudden, this phone call that changed my life, I get the call. I answer the phone. And uh, Andy Schoen says, hey, Matt, I've been trying to call you for a few hours now. I said, uh. Well, Andy, I'm really sorry. You know, we only have about three phone lines here for the entire radio station. He said, I'll tell you what, come work for me. I'll make sure you have more than three phone lines. And I'll never forget that was that was the uh, the thing that he said to me. That was a life changer. And uh, next thing you know, um, a couple months later, I am uh, working, commuting to New York City from New Jersey. And uh, and I am uh, working at MTV's music department. And I'll I'll explain to you that I never thought I was going to do radio or be on TV again. And the one thing I did not want to do, I did not want to make them think I had a hidden agenda just to be on television. Um, so I was, you know, you know, I, I, it was, you know, it was already hard to give up doing radio five days a week. Cause I loved having the medium, having that platform, but I knew how important it was to get, get a job there and to, uh, basically program what was the biggest radio station in the world, even though it was a TV station. Well, so, and you always came across, unlike some VJs that I can remember back in the day, you always came across as the interviewer that put the artist and the music over and didn't worry about whether or not you were the one getting the maximum exposure. No, it was always about the music for me. It, it's always been. Like, you know, that's been the thing for me From that goes back to, you know, college radio to spinning in those clubs to uh, to doing that radio station on the shore. It was always music first. It was artist and music first. It still is artist and music first for me. I think that's the most important thing. I mean, I always believe that it was so important that if an artist spent six months to a year writing the music, recording the music, you know, uh, I wanted to do the best job to, of getting that their music and their their ideas and their songs and everything and their work across and doing the best job that I could for their fans and for somebody who might discover them. So that was always well, my and priority. It's funny I, that I found out you were involved with a band that I discovered, although they've been around now for quite a while, uh, but Coheed and Cambria has kind of been your baby. Well, I love those guys. I will say, um, yeah, you know, I signed them to Columbia. Now they were on, a, on an independent label before me. Um, but I was one who actually ended up getting involved with them while they were making their second album, um, which was in keeping secrets of silent earth. Um, and that record, um, I, I was involved with it, even though it still came out on the indie. And then what we did was released on the indie for a short period of time. And then it came out on Columbia. So it was, uh, it was a joint venture, but yes, Coheed were a very important band to me, and I was really involved right right about from the beginning with them. I discovered them and when they were still playing in clubs for about 30 people, um, and I loved the guys. And then, you know, ended up putting in, Keeper, in Keeping Secrets of Silent Earth out and, and working on that record with them. And then, the, then doing all of Good Apollo, that was... Uh, did that directly with those guys good apollo uh, on burning star four the first one volume one from fear through the eyes of madness i love with the longest title but 
I love that record so much. I love all those records. And um, it was an incredible experience uh, to be involved with those guys. They're still like brothers to me. They're, they're just the greatest of friends. And I remember when I was living in San Francisco doing a morning show up there at KFOG, and the guys came through for the anniversary tour um, for Good Apollo. Uh, Claudio Sanchez went on stage and made this incredible dedication to me right before the encore about, um, you know, just how devoted I was to the band. And, what you know, so it was it was an incredible experience to work with them. I toured Europe with them. I, um, you know, was with uh, Claudio through a lot of the writing process of all those songs. And uh they were like my little brothers back then. They're not little, my little brothers anymore. They got their families of their own. You know what I mean? They're all yeah. their dads and, you know, but uh, I love those guys very much. And I think they're a great, great rock band. They, I mean, they're still out there killing it. Every album they put out uh, enters the Billboard Top 10. Uh, they've got an incredible, devoted fan base who are, uh, and um, I've been nothing but proud of those guys. So. Love, love working with them, and uh, I'm glad that's a part of my story, you know. And um, so that so that was an incredible thing, getting to work at Columbia Records and Co-Eater, certainly. I, you know, I made some great records there, but uh, Co-Eater is very, really special to my heart. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, they um, they had the moment where, you know, MTV was behind them with a, uh, with a, a Favorite House Atlantic and then Welcome Home, um, and... You know, they even did, I remember they did a Hard Rock Live. We did it from Orlando, like a half-hour, eight-at-night album, our special one. Right. We put out Good, Good Apollo, which was great. And I was, I was there for that, of course. And um, But, uh, yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of people who don't know who Coheed are that, I, that should, because I think they're such a great band, you know? Now, where, does, where do you think music goes from here? What's... What's the next big thing that people are kind of sleeping on at this point? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, quite honestly, I, I you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think music, it will continue, um, you know, to evolve it as it does. You know, I mean, I think that things have changed because of the way the music's delivered has changed uh, quite a bit uh, of, of what people do. I mean, I love the fact that there's a resurgence of bands uh, that are playing you know, rock and roll like the Struts and Greta Van Fleet, you know, and uh, even bands like Nothing But Thieves. And there's this new guy, Des Rocks, that's coming out, D-E-S-R-O-C-S, that I'm a big fan of. That's He's, he's going to drop an album this year. Um, and, you know, alternative bands, like I said, like Nothing But Thieves, Love Royal Blood. I think those guys are great because uh, they're a two-piece, but they sound like a, you know, cross somewhere between, uh, you know, Muse and Zeppelin and, um, in fact, those guys, Royal Blood, are like a two piece from Brighton, England. It's funny because they've been endorsed by Jimmy Page and uh, Lars from Metallica and, you know, Jack White and a ton of people. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of Royal Blood. But I mean, I just think music will keep evolving. There, it, it, it's an interesting period that it's in right now because, you know, there's certainly on alternative radio, there's a lot less uh, rock and like guitars, which. You know, I'd like to see more of a balance of uh, guitars. Not, not that I have anything against the stuff that is more keyboard or synth-driven by any means. I mean, there's some great stuff, but um, I would certainly like to see a little more of a balance of uh, of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, music just continues to evolve. Um, it's uh, one of those things where, um, I'm you're, you know, you're always really hoping that people break through more as artists as opposed to just songs. I think it's become... With the uh, 
with digital delivery of music, I think that um, it's a very song based business right now where people are about songs. And I think that I wish radio would become uh, decide that they own artists too and they want to promote an artist and not just go by only by a song because I think that that's, I mean, that's no, really no different than top 40 in a sense because, you know, like people always say, Top 40 is a place that you live, that you uh, visit. You can't live, you don't live there. And that's, uh, that was a funny line that a, that a major executive at Columbia said to me back when I was, uh, doing A&R over there in the 2000s. And, uh, he has an interesting point because, of course, things are always moving, but I, I do believe that there, there really in radio, there needs to be, um, more, more, more loyalty to artists. And, you know, when artists decide to do something, a little bit different or step out of their complete comfort zone. I think, uh, the thing that really has always made people gravitate towards artists and, 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 and to build an incredible catalog of music and songs is because they've had the opportunity to grow and to change and to experiment and do what they want to do. Uh, and radio used to stand behind them. And I think that's one of the things that's missing a little bit right now, to be honest with you, you know? I, I definitely see that in that it looks like, and, and much like me and I think anybody else that listens to music, everybody's got those albums that you bought because you heard that one or those one or two songs that were on the radio, but you've got this album that you liked so much more than was ever played on the radio and the stuff that was actually not the, the deep cuts actually turns out meaning more to you in the music than the actual hits that came off the album. And nowadays, with the digital onslaught, you're allowed to just buy the hits. So you may miss out on some music that could be phenomenal and could, for some kid playing music or wanting to play, that could change his life. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. And I I, uh, I think it's, you know, like albums as a body of music are very, very important. And I think, you know, uh, that, like you said, I mean, that's always been the way it has been for me since I was a young, young kid. I, I certainly, you know, the hits were the thing that brought you in and, you know, invited you in. And they're very important as a part of uh, the history of that artist. But it is those deep tracks on the albums uh, that that you love, that, that you kind of become your thing, that you take more ownership in and you and you get to really experience the uh, artist on a deeper level. And, um, you know, you're always, you're always hoping that that's, uh, you know, where people go, but I think the, a lot of younger people are are definitely because of uh, you know the how just how easy it is to get music and and everything at your fingertips. Um, I think uh, it's different than when you had to go home and buy a CD or buy a vinyl album or a cassette, and uh, because you liked a couple songs, but you you had to, you had to live with it and you would you would listen to it all the way through. And, uh, and hopefully it was a great record because then you would get so much more out of it, more, more joy and enjoyment out of that record and just a deeper, uh, a feeling for it. But, uh, I mean, there are certainly still artists out there that people do, do, uh, listen to and love and are passionate about and, uh, and listen to their entire records. But, um, you know, I don't think with, with a certain amount of young people, and this isn't any disrespect to them. This is just the way they've been raised. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's much more of a song driven market, which it's always been, but I think, uh, more than ever, that's really the way it is. And that's just because of the ease at, uh, what you can do to consume music. And, and personally, I have nothing against that. I stream music too. I mean, I, I have a huge vinyl collection 
and I still have a, a, a boatload of all my CD stuff, which a lot of it is still um, because I moved from uh, New York, New Jersey to San Francisco and then L.A. I still have like a container uh, on one of my buddy's uh, shipyards out on uh, on Port Newark that's literally filled with uh, my original record collection and all my CDs. Uh, because I couldn't move with all that stuff when I had to move. In and like if we go weeks. get it, we can have it, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, if you, can find it. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys can find it. Yeah, my buddy, he's uh, worth a shot. You know, I, I, I said, my 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 boys that grew up with in Jersey are the real Sopranos. You know what I mean? And, uh, but I he mean, was we like, won't be going looking for those records. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but uh, those guys. Uh, one of my buddies just said to me, he goes, you're killing yourself coming back and forth from San Francisco every weekend to try and finish packing your house while you're out there. I mean, because I was doing a morning shift. I was doing a syndicated show. And at the time, I was also tracking nights for KFOX. So I was – and then I would get on a plane. I'd come to New York um, on a Friday night. All day Saturday and half of the day Sunday, I would uh, I would sit there and um, and, you know, be packing and boxing with a couple of my buddies, and then eventually my friend who owns a big trucking company said to me, Matt, I'm going to send over two trucks, just tip the drivers. I got an air-conditioned container on my yard. I'm going to lock it up and put your stuff there. And believe it or not, it's been there ever since. So it's been there for a few years. I just I started anew when I moved to San Francisco. And then, you know, I had less stuff to move down here to L.A. where I am now. But, um, you know, it's – uh. That's the thing that's funny, but I was going to say that I, you know, I was, I was saying that I, I love to stream music and make playlists and do all that stuff. I think that's important. I, you know, I, uh, you know, I love Spotify and uh, Apple Music, but I also still love having my vinyl here and, uh, being able to put on records. And uh, I love the artwork and I love reading about the artists. And uh, so all that stuff is super important, you know? Um, and, uh, I just think it's, it, and people feel the same way about CDs like I did. So it was the same deal. Um, or maybe cassettes they grew up with, but yeah, I mean, I, um, I think that, you know, you know, and I just wanted to finish the one story and get back to you about when I was talking about MTV, the really interesting thing was when I got there again, I wasn't expecting to be on the air ever again. In fact, it was kind of sad to me the day that I did my last radio show It was bittersweet on that radio station. But of course, little did I know that within about eight months I would be back on television and then on television every week on 120 minutes for, for years and and doing other shows for the uh for mtv and you know and then doing radio again you know i was doing radio in new york i had a you know a, a sunday night show that i did for 13 years on k-rock there called the buzz where I, I play all new music have artists come in and perform um so in much in the style of 120 minutes so yeah i mean it's uh it's been an I, all i can say to you guys is it's been an incredible ride of a very very blessed life um i've had my uh, like everyone else in their life you had your challenges you've had your ups and downs but i've also had some incredible moments and uh you know i'm grateful for all those good times and, and uh, I, can, I just can, i'm grateful to still be alive and continue to get to go keep going uh finding new artists finding new music going to see great music going to see great rock and roll and great alternative music and uh you know i just uh i'm really happy to be alive and happy to be here you know well, we're like I said, we're definitely happy to have you here. Uh, to wrap things up, we always do what we call our weigh-in segment. 
Okay. And we have a topic each week, and it's a top three, and we go around and tell each tell one and count down. Our top three, in honor of you being on today, is top three favorite alternative albums. Okay, great. All right. What, what do you guys want to pick? Um, do you want to go first with your picks? Oh, I want to hear you guys first, and then I'll okay. do mine. It'll be great. Yeah. Um, I'll go. My three are easy. It's uh, Nirvana, Nevermind, Silverchair, uh, Freak Show, and Strays by Jane's Addiction. Uh, all great records. Absolutely. And Devin, what were your three? My three is Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, Allison Chains, Tripod, and Pearl Jam Versus. All three great records. You know, it's so hard for me, guys, because you picked some of both of you guys picked some of my favorites. I love that you call it Tripod, too, because, man, that dog, uh, Jerry really had that dog, man, the three, uh, three-legged three dog. That was Jerry's dog for a long time, you know? Wow. Jerry Cantrell. I was over at Jerry's uh, birthday party this past year, and there, was, there were a ton of cool people that came out to Jerry's. And, uh, you know, I just saw, I was with Mike Inez from Allison Chains literally, uh, you know, uh, just two weeks ago, I might, I may, I may even see him tonight. I'm not sure, but um, uh, you know, he's uh, I love those records. You know, you you mentioned it's so hard to break down three, but I mean, I gotta say, Nevermind is my number one, and I got I got the reason I gotta say that is I think that it, I I I see the parallel with how much what Nirvana did and how it changed things to being very 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 like uh, there was a similar way that the trajectory of my music career and radio and TV career went with Nirvana. So I've got to put that at number one, um, uh, just because it's very important to me uh, there. And uh, number, number two, um, I'm going to put James addiction, nothing shocking, which is uh, another really important record uh, that, that, uh, that came through there. And I'm, you know, just because uh, you guys both mentioned other favorites of mine, I'm going to put Soundgarden super unknown as my number three. Um, because I love that record very much. And I was very close to Chris and the band. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I, just like Allison Chains, I was their go-to guy, you know, for, for the Seattle bands. Uh, but I love everything you guys picked. I mean, I, I left out Radiohead to Benz. That's one of my favorites. Uh, I do so love I didn't even go into Radiohead. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love that. I, you know, I mean, Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral, and Pretty Hate Machine are two of my favorites. Pearl Jam Versus, you mentioned, uh, that's... My favorite Pearl Jam album, with, with a hands down. You know what I mean? I mean that record, uh, start to finish, is so great. I love all those records that you guys pick, and I love that you picked Silverchair because, I mean, those guys, those were a band that I debuted on there. I remember uh, hearing them, uh, finding out about them, uh, but right around the same time that David Massey signed Silverchair, and I remember he was really surprised that I knew who they were, and I told him I thought that our record was going to be the first record was going to be huge. You know what I mean? So, um. You know, with tomorrow on it. So, Frog Stomp. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I thought you guys picked great records. I'm just—it's so hard to narrow it down to three, but I mean, I'm just going to put it at that. And uh, but there's there's some great there's so many great records. I love all those bands, you know. So um, and that's nine I'd albums. Hard- if you're getting into alternative, pick those nine up. You got a pretty good start. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but guys, I really enjoy doing this with you today. I want to thank you for having me on. Absolutely. We want to thank you. Uh, tell everybody out there that's listening where they can find you back on the radio when you okay, are well, I, back in the studio. I'll, ch- 
I'll give you a couple things you can check out. First of all, I'm on the radio every weekend around the country, um, about 92 radio stations. I do a, a, a rock history show called Flashback, which uh, there's a four-hour version of it and a two-hour version, depending on which market you are in. But if you look it up or check your local radio stations, uh, you, you could find that show uh, there. I also wanted to let you know I wrote a book um, that came out. Uh, the first edition of the book came out uh, just just about two years ago. Um, it's a book about it's an autobiography on my life. It's called All These Things That I've Done, My Insane, Improbable Rock Life. And uh, I got to read book was, this. Yeah, this book is great. And it's it's you know, it's a hardcover. You can find it on Amazon. You can you can buy it there. New or used. You can uh, get it on Nook, Kindle. You can get it on Audible and you can get it on books on CD. So it's everywhere. And that's again, it's named after the killer song that Brandon Flowers wrote the night that he met me, all these things that I've done, the one that says, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. And if you want to find out the story behind that song and a lot of other stories about, you know, my years at MTV and, you know, relationships with everybody from U2 and Bowie to the Seattle guys, it's all in that book. So it's called All These Things That I've Done. Um, and that's a book I'd love you to check out. Um, you can find me online at uh, on Twitter. I'm at Matt Pinfield. On Instagram, I'm uh, Matthew Pinfield, okay? And then on Facebook, I'm also Matthew Pinfield because I always tell people they're, uh, Matt Pinfield is a pretty common name in the UK, in England, because I'm English-Irish and a little Italian. So um, uh, all over the UK, there's, there's, Matt, there's a bunch of Matt Pinfields. In fact, one time on my morning show in New York City, uh, we, did, we did a thing. A guy was in a band called The Young Runaways, an alternative band guitar player named Matt Pinfield. So we did this uh, thing. We said, Matt, it was called Matt Pinfield meet Matt Pinfield. And uh, we nice. had him on the air with us, which was really cool. But um, so, yeah, so it's Matthew Pinfield on Facebook, Matthew Pinfield on uh, Instagram and at Matt Pinfield on Twitter. So that's where you can find me and the radio show, the book, you check any of them out. But uh, guys, it was really a pleasure to do this with you today. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And I love your taste in music. And, uh, and, we, uh, we would love to have you back anytime. Oh yeah, anytime you guys need me, you know how to reach me. So, uh, and I'll be around. Good, good news is, I'll st uh, right now, it lo everything looks good that I'll still be breathing. It'll still be a, still be a part of the world, and I'm grateful to be here. You know, uh, we are great. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We we We're really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, listen, I will speak to you soon. Thanks again for doing it, and uh, and uh, let me know when it's up, and I'll, I'll be looking for it. Okay, guys. Not a problem, so, man. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And that, right, ladies bye -bye. and gentlemen, is the end of what I would say is probably our biggest interview to date. I would have to agree. So, much like our waistline, things are growing around here. I thought our waistline was shrinking. Hey, hey, shut up. Nobody needs to know that yet. <laughs> well... Until we do this again, same fat time, same, same fat, fat channel. channel.